This is the Fail Fast Podcast. Stories of entrepreneurs who looked at failure in the eyes and didn't give up. With your host, the online sales master, Quinn Amorum. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today, we have with us the CEO of the Web Matrix Group, which helps business increase their revenue by millions every single year. He was born and raised in London, and after losing his parents at the age of 20 in his arms, he ventured into business as a way to support himself and his dreams. He's now the CEO of multiple companies that pull six and seven figures per year, as well as multiple number one best-selling author. Some of his businesses' successes include raising millions of dollars for acquisitions and adding 400K a month in revenue to a construction company in 90 days with just video ads. We got to talk about that one for sure. He's been invited to write for Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and he's been interviewed by USA Today, CNN, CNBC, you name it. Welcome, everybody. Emmy Tariq. Emmy, how's it going? Doing good, thank you. Thank you so much. So you have an impressive resume. Of course, I mean, uh, USA Today, CNN, CNNBC, you write for Forbes and Entrepreneur, not just one, but both. And Business Insider now as well, actually. What's that? And Business Insider as well now. Business Insider, okay, that's it. So I guess you keep yourself fairly busy all the time. Yes, Nice. Um, we were talking earlier, and I know you're you're not in London right now, so you are in sunny Florida. Yes, I call it paradise. Yeah, it is a nice piece of paradise. So I envy you for that because it's cold where I am right now, and and it's not snowing right now, but there's snow on the ground. So, Amy, let's talk about all your successes, your failures, if you had failures, and the story you had to be able to kind of support yourself after you lost your parents. And like I said in the intro, you lost them in your arms. Do you want to talk about that? How did that affect you and kind of... Okay, so I lost my mom when I was 19. And to give a bit of backstory, so my dad, when I was 12, he's perfect his entire testing and he nearly died. He was in four hours in surgery, emergency surgery, um, and he had to have staples in the stomach bag. A couple of years later, he got rid of that. Just as he was recovering, my mom went into cardiac arrest when I was 15. And when they managed to resuscitate her and keep her alive. So he, had a, so he went from 100 heart function down to 21% heart function. And they basically gave up on her because there's nothing they can do to recover the heart function. So my background, that's in medical, so, and so was my dad. My dad was a very prominent medical researcher worldwide, considered for the Nobel Prize even. So he trained me up on how to do medical research and how to think. And we took my mom's heart function from 21% to 46% in about 90 days. Wow. And with that, she stayed alive for several years. And then she stopped listening and started declining. And her health basically she deteriorated and died in my arms. With that, my dad died um, when I was 20 from a result of um, medical negligence and malpractice and a bunch of other things. Um, he's died of septicemia and septic shock. Hmm. And they refused to treat it or resuscitate him. Wow. And with that, I basically lost both my parents by the time I was 20. And I just finished my finals at university when I lost my dad. That is incredible. And, man, it, it affects me in a way that you wouldn't even understand because I, I lost my dad a few months ago. So to hear that. And um, thank you. And it was, we believe, also a little bit of malpractice. And it was from 
uh, he got hurt on the foot. That's it. He had a wound on his foot and he let it go. He was a very tough man, let it go untreated for, for a longer time. And then he went to the hospital and uh, yeah, they, they decided that they had to cut his leg. And uh, when they did it, whatever they gave him stopped his kidneys. And that's kind of what, right? There wasn't the leg problem that, that killed him. It was the kidneys. So that's sad. Yeah, man. Oh, man. So, Emmy, and now at the age of 20, you're pretty much, you're, you don't have parents and you have to try to support yourself and you have big dreams like any 20-year-old. You have all these dreams. So where do you go from there? Do you go find a job or did you start a business? So what happened was when I, um, I went to get a job and I landed a job very quickly and I quit on the first day in about four hours. <laughs> I, I couldn't hack it. I, I couldn't find instructions. So I, as I went back on the train, I went back home and I was laid in my bed. I'm like, okay, I've got about eight weeks left of money to live on because I worked throughout university to, pay, to save up some. And like when I was 12 to 15, before my mom got really, really sick, I built a business at 12 years old where I was making in US dollars about $7,000 a month. Nice, nice. At 12 years old. So I'm like, I figured out business when I was very little that I knew I could make money. And I was like, oh, I reckon I can make money locally by using the networks that I had and have a connection. So I took over um existing business that my dad had, but he basically shut down a couple months before he died. Called up all his distant ones and we started that business because I helped him build that business as well. So that gave me a breathing room. And then I was like, I'm never going to get rich and get to America because it was my dream. Since I was six years old, I wanted to live in the United States. And my dream was to go to Harvard. So with that, I was like, I, I'm in Harvard. If you want to pass medical school there, I had no other direction. Basically, I couldn't get a scholarship because I'm international. I couldn't get any loans, student loans. I'm like, I had to figure out how to pay 400000 for myself. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, the tuition is keeping me by. I'm living on a um, six-figure income. But it's not going to get me to where I need to get to. So what I needed to do is I figured out a way to leverage real estate with my friends and help them get money for their real estate development deals that they were stuck on. And then I made a couple million on that. And then what happened is I was going to Harvard, met my wife, and she said, look, you don't even want the medicine you're doing it because you have no other direction and you feel guilty towards your parents. And that's what they wanted you to do. And she was right. I was like, I really had no direction or sense of direction I wanted to do. I was so screwed up at the time. After my dad's death, um, I, just, I, I just had lost it. What I really wanted to do escape from London anyway and go to the United States. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So with it, um, I basically dropped out after getting into Harvard. And I basically sold up all my real estate investments and lost a lot of money in taxes. And when the currency crashed in the UK just before I moved, and I lost over a million dollars just on that. Really? Oh, man. And I lost a million because my family stole money from me. And they tried to put me in a mental asylum for leaving the UK and go to the US to get control of my money. Really? So I, lost, so- I lost all my family as well at that time. And as I moved to the United States, I lost all my funding because obviously the UK crashed. So I was like, okay, I can't get money to do real estate in the US anymore, which was my original plan. So I went to Bob Proctor and I said to him, look, I want to build businesses and scale them properly. And I have no connection. I don't know how to run a real business. I got lucky before. So like, I paid him 50 grand, 60 grand. And then he put me in the online world. And that's how I got started in the online world. That is that's so impressive. And now you run and you manage multiple companies. Is that correct? Yes. And all of those companies are related to the online world. Do you have any? No, they're not. I've got a few I'm buying right now that are traditional. I've also had equity in companies that are traditional. 
I've got my hands in studying patterns in business because my ace, whilst I studied molecular medicine and biochemistry at university, mm-hmm. my real strength was chemistry. And what I was really good at chemistry was energetics and also patterns. I understood that chemistry in life is all about patterns and I could study patterns. So I took, I learned different things from different businesses and different industries. I like that one. The study of patterns is, is very, very cool. So another thing that you, I know you're big at is search engine optimization. That's something you've been working on for many years and with some of the top people in that industry as well. Is there still a place, because right now we're, we're in an age where paid ads, paid traffic, Facebook ads, Google, YouTube, you know, all those are huge, right? There's some, some people that create e-commerce sites, they turn on paid traffic and never go after SEO, right? Do you yes. think search engine optimization is still important today? I think it's essential. I'm going to put it this way. You can do paid ads all you want. I think it's great. Don't get me wrong. I love paid ads. I use paid ads very heavily. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, SEO or search engine optimization is the only form of advertising where you can invest the same amount of dollars every single month in your advertising which actually grows for you. I, with paid ads, you're not guaranteed to penetrate new markets. You're not even guaranteed to hit new people and not guaranteed to convert them either. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's a black hole because the, the moment you turn off your advertising, you lose all that traffic and paid ads. With setting the optimizations, you do it correctly, you build an asset that is evergreen. I, I agree with that. I love it. And yes, I love having things that are going to last a long time, unless it's a, a business that you're just trying to flip. Of course, yeah, you turn on some paid advertising. And yes, turn on paid advertising because I do that. Uh, every day too, right? In all different markets. I and think it's important to do both. Every, a lot of people will say only do paid ads or the other ones say do SEO. I think you should like both. Uh, both at the same time. I agree because the, the paid ads are actually going to bring traffic to the site. So the SEO is going to get more, it's going to become more relevant if there's people that are browsing the site. So it will help them both. Yes, exactly. And, and again, with the platform where you're advertising, let's say if it's Facebook, they also, if your ad is relevant to to the content, right? You have this, now that they don't even show the relevancy score anymore, but your ads can be cheaper if you are actually uh, relevant. So if you have SEO, your ads are cheaper. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Glad we agree with that. There's a lot of people think SEO is dead and you should not worry about it. Same as email marketing. I mean, there's a place for everything, right? They're probably not as powerful as they used to be, but... Well, I'm going to put it this way. Um, even in a local market for SEO, my clients ranking on the maps in about 35 locations, they pulled in, they went from 25000 a month to 250000 a month just from the SEO alone. No paid ads. And this is just with the placements on Google Maps? Yes. And so let's, let's talk a bit about that. How do I go about, if I have a business with one location, can I have placements in more than one map? Yes, you can. Because what you can do, you get, there's two ways you can do this. Now, this come a bit more tricky recently, which is the first method, which is you can create multiple DMBs using other people's addresses or fake addresses. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming more tricky, um, but you can do it that way. The other thing you can do is you can increase the proximity by using Google My Maps as well as creating pages for each single suburb throughout the entire city. And then you can create driving maps where you embed the map from a point of the suburb over to your actual location. And that increases the proximity as well. Therefore, now your um, location and proximity starts pushing out to all the different map areas. Nice. So without doing that, 
what kind of proximity do we have right now? Is it about like 20 kilometer range or more? It depends upon the next the business and city. Oh, okay, yeah, depending on the city, I guess so. Because in Cause Los like, Angeles, the proximity is going to be way less than somewhere, let's say, like Evansville, Indiana. Oh, okay, of course, yes. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in Los Angeles, uh, Google is not going to give you a 20 kilometer radius. You would have, oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, the client I was telling you about with the maps, they wanted 10, 15,000. They're actually in LA. Mm-hmm. So you can hack the maps in, in the metro cities, but you have to do the other strategies that I was saying. Oh, really? You can hack the, the proximity. Man, so those are those are some of the things that I definitely do not know about. I put myself on a map and I put, of course, uh, four or five different locations, and that's kind of the extent of it. Do you have any kind of business that is providing those services for others? Yes, yeah, so Remetis Group does a lot of the traffic stuff. So the YouTube commercial, the SEO, the ADA web design, funnels, and PR, it's all under that one company. Okay, awesome. So we'll uh, we'll have to look into that later. And for those of you listening, that's the Web Matrix Group. That uh, Emmy here, you are the CEO of the Web Matrix Group. So I'm the co-founder. Okay, awesome. Now let's talk about that construction company. There was a construction company that you added 400k in revenue with one video. One video ad sequence, yeah. Oh, well, a... okay. So what happened was is I took the commercial. And what I realized was it, um, I just duplicated the ads in different cities as well. I, they basically go in a city where you can hit two other cities. So, for example, one of the companies I'm buying is in Miami. I can hit Fort Lauderdale and Hold Palm Beach. That's why I'm buying it. This is in a different city. So what happened was is I said to them, look, the video ads are performing here. But it would all, you guys are only 30 minutes away from these two cities. Can you guys reach those cities as well? And they said, yes, we could and easily serve them. So we basically ran the proximity to three cities using one campaign. Mm-hmm. It's duplicated the campaigns over across three cities. Therefore, the reach now went way um, higher and we basically took over the entire area. Then the second thing that I did is, is I ran the ads and I overlaid it with the news channel's audiences so everybody knew who they were for a dollar a day. So within um, 30 days, for 30 bucks, I basically showed up in front of thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> so for branding, and when they saw the other ads, it just clicked and then they had retargeting as well. So with the retargeting, it just went even faster in the snowboard. And because these are high-ticket services, like five, ten grand, it's not even really that much. Mm-hmm. All you need is 40 sales. I mean, that's really mind-blowing. And uh, I definitely got to look into that as well. And you do a lot of ads on, on YouTube. That is one of the platforms that I don't know much about. So what are the benefits of doing ads on YouTube? So here's why I like YouTube more than any other platform right now. If you look at YouTube as a whole, like if you get on the TVs now. A lot of people will actually watch YouTube. It's right in front of you. So if I get my phone, I'm literally watching right here. It's on the desktop. It's on the iPads or whatever. And here's the other thing with YouTube. It's search engine user intent. It's a search engine. Not like social media or Instagram or Facebook where you're scrolling mindlessly. Yeah. You're actually looking for things on YouTube. And by leveraging that intent with search engine user history using Google's AI, we can now have ads. And when it's relevant, they'll be very attentive to watch and able to convert way better. So you used Google's AI, is that only available to, to you as an advertiser? Or as, if, you, if you're trying to post these videos organically on YouTube, you I don't have... I found it only in the paid ad section. I oh. never found it in the organic section. Okay, gotcha. Now, Amy, you also raised money for acquisitions. Is that right? Yes. So uh, let's, how did you start? How did you start? So basically what happened is I wanted to buy these companies using other people's money because the key is leverage. 
is how I did real estate and I wanted the same in real estate um, and not real estate in new companies. And what I realized is, is, see, you go to like a VC and here's an interesting story about failing fast actually as well. So what happened, you go to a VC, you're pitching a startup. It's a lot easier to go to VCs and pitch up a startup than it is to go to a normal investors, even millionaire investors in country club to pitch a startup. Now, if you're talking about an existing company with a proven track record, you're going to show them how you're going to go to the company and get them that ROI. It's a lot easier to raise money. The secret of acquisitions, in my opinion, is talking about proven track record companies that have at least a five-year track record, and you're going to show them how you're going to grow it and what they're doing wrong. It's not that hard to offer the money then. If I can show you, look, you give me 100000 I'm going to turn it into 250000 within, say, two years, back to you, guaranteed, and I'll personally insure it. What's the chance you'll hand me that money? A lot higher. Of, of course, yes. And that's how it really works in the sense of creating relationships and creating deals that everyone wants to invest in. Everyone wants a good deal. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, when you look at like a bank, it pays like 1% if you're lucky. Real estate, a typical average is 8% to 10%. I say to people, look, give them a, these investors when you buy acquisition, a 15% ROI. It's more attractive than real estate. It's better for them and they're going to get the money back. That's right, because the customer, that's one thing that a lot of people forget is the number one thing in their mind is what's in it for me, right? Exactly. What's in it for me is always what the customer is thinking. So, of course, if you all increase the benefit that they're getting, the chances increase as well. So it's Well, I'm also asking them to not invest that money in real estate, because when you're asking for millions of dollars, you've got to ask, it, what could they spend that million dollars on? And when you, you compare to what we could spend it on, you've got to make it more attractive to them to want to give it to you. And like a 2% increase is not enough of an attractive offer, in my opinion. But if I give them a 5% offer or 50% increase on what they're used to getting on real estate, mm-hmm. how much more attractive is that? It just changes the dynamics of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so what if, what if somebody is starting, starting right now and, you, and they would want, let's say, want a piece of advice from you, what is your, your number one advice for that person? My number one advice would be, and this is what I do with everything I ever do, is seek clarity. And what I mean by that is the only problem we have in life with clarity, I always find that people have a self-worth issue, they're unclear on why they work whatever they want, or they have the wrong strategy. So I would always seek clarity. Everything starts in the mind. The strategies even that you assemble are going to be in the mind. And then I'll say the second piece of advice is, is never to give up. So the story is going to say about the venture capitalist even. I was speaking to a billionaire friend of mine in Canada. I said, his name's Brian. Brian and I were talking and he was basically saying to me, um, I was asking him some advice after helping him out with some stuff. I was asking his advice about investment. And he said to me, a little story he told me. He said, I've invested money. And what happened was when I started my deals, I started losing money or barely breaking even or making very little money. And then one of my friends would make, on the second win, he won or made like $50 million. And he's like, oh, $100 million, et cetera. And then I was like, I always keep losing. And he said that basically he calls it needle in a haystack. He said, if you look at um, a needle in a haystack, it takes approximately average about 26 tries to get it. If you keep trying, that next win is going to, as Napoleon Hill would say, if you can go rich. It's the, when, the moment you stop, it's the one after that you will stop. It's the one who got you the win that you wanted to. Yeah, so they start, some people stop too early. They stop too early. So never, ever give up. Mm-hmm. Right? And what he did also say, and this is my own personal belief as well, is when something doesn't work, like an inventor will say, and my friend Gary Mitchelson will say, he said to me, as an inventor, we see things very different. We don't see things as failures. We just see things as ways to learn and adapt and try something new. Yeah, that's what I'm all about, right? Things are, are not a failure until until you give up on that or you stop trying. It's basically, it's just like... Feedback and lessons. 
Exactly. It's a bunch of lessons that you're going to use to to better yourself and to better whatever that's, that that. Um, That's like the human body. We look at the human body because this is my medical stuff talking. Like you touch a hot stone, what's your hand going to do? It's going to pull back automatically, and that's the feedback from your brain that it's hot and it hurts and it pulls it away. You won't make that mistake again. <laughs> Making mistakes is called feedback. It, it works. Nature had programmed it from the beginning of time. Absolutely. So, Amy, let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. Yes. Uh, there was a question asked to Russell Brunson, the, the founder of ClickFunnels, or co-founder, and it was, if you lost everything today, what would you do to start up? Like, what would you do? Well, last me a couple of years ago, I would have said something completely different. What I would do now is invest in PR, my personal brand, first and foremost. And the reason being is, if you look at the advice that Bill Gates said, I didn't understand it at the time when I read it years ago, but I said my advice was different. He said if he was down to his last dollars, he'd invest everything into PR. And the reason being is what I've learned, and this is the power of PR, is if we say something or we can get clients to say something, it's, power, it's more powerful for clients to say it than we say it. But what yeah. I found even more powerful is if we get a big publication to say it about us. And it reaches hundreds of millions of people. For example, four reaches 100 million people. Entrepreneurial is like 18 million. Business side is like 17 million or 90 million, whatever it is. You know you can get your exposure out through the big publications, but it's a trusted publication writing about you, which means you now do your authority figure. It's a hack to jump your authority ladder. Because whatever you say is now much more trusted. And that's and the ultimate leverage. And how does somebody get into becoming a uh, contributor to Forbes, an entrepreneur, and how, how does that happen? Do, do they actually go after you? Because I know years ago, there was still an option where you could apply, and then, of course, not everybody would get in. But now I don't even think there's that option of applying. You can apply, but it's much, much harder. And I wish I didn't figure this out years ago to apply myself. Um, if you go back even four years ago, it was very, very easy to get in to these publications mm-hmm. four years ago as a contributor. Now it's near impossible. I think on my seventh or eighth try to get a contributor at Inc. Oh, really? Yeah, just to see you alone. Right? And I'm figuring out what we're wanting, and I'm getting data back and working out and tweaking it every time. I don't want to keep doing it until I get in. I'll get in. It's persistence, relentlessness. But um, how do you become a contributor? Everybody wants to jump the gun and immediately be in these big publications. They want to write for Forbes straight away because they feel like they're the best. And I don't care if you're the best or not. Forbes doesn't care, right? Nor does entrepreneur, et cetera. So what I always recommend is, is the first thing I like to do is I tell people to write a book. Build that authority before you go after media. And when I say write the book, basically you can record yourself it, um, and transcribe it. So that to cause yourself a, a book and take about two to three hours. Transcription, if you're paying a dollar a minute, you're paying about 200 to $300. Mm-hmm. Now you can edit that book and get it printed and for maybe another two $300. You're paying about $600 and you've got a book. With that, I would go out to some small publications, that's the Five Global, Edited to Success, Good Men Project. I say small, we're medium actually, but still, we're small enough that you can get in fairly easily. We're a good pitch and a good basic credibility such as the book. Now I've got myself these three or four smaller publications with really good articles. I'll probably get two or three more articles in each one of them. So I have about eight to 12 articles. Now I'll start pitching out the bigger publications. Because hmm. now I have a track record. Yeah, and this only happens with real publications of books, not the self-published paperback and the Kindles. And you have to actually have a... Uh, well, you can put it on Amazon and get a real paperback. A lot of people that put the Kindle and that's it. I mm-hmm. want a real paperback. 
And I also like to use my book as a way to give a gift to the editors at publications. I went into Inc. and shook hands with the editors and this is and gave them a copy of my books, um, signed copy, each one of them. Now they know me, I still got rejected, that's fine, but I got I put my foot in the door. I flew to New York just to give them a copy of my book. Hmm. Nice. And could you use as leverage the fact that you already are a Forbes contributor and I have. And it's okay. gone um it makes life easier. I think my biggest problem is I don't build my social media much because I'm a very private person, which I'm starting to realize that I have to build my social media if I want to really get that exposure out to Inc. Inc. is much more tricky than the others. See, I've done social media for other people go to follow me. I haven't done it for myself. But I, okay, I'm going to have to do it now. And you mentioned earlier about perseverance and it seems like you're insisting in getting something that you really want until you get it. That's one of the key factors that successful entrepreneurs have is one is self-discipline and the other one is not giving up. So what are some of the things that you notice people, what that people don't do? People that want to be successful, but there's things that they don't do. What are some okay, of Okay, they're not totally committed to the goal. And what I mean by this is this. When I looked at Napoleon Hill thinking go away, the story, uh, and this is how I signed up with Bob Potts, actually. So here's a nice little story. So he said to me, do you know the meaning of Tarek? And I said, I have no idea. And, I, and he said, okay, I'm going to tell you a story, is what he said to me. And the story was, he said, there was a general in um, Morocco, um, from Morocco who went to Spain and conquered Spain, which was a story of um, thinking where it came from, burning the boats. And he said, basically, the general was losing the war. Mm-hmm. So he gave his men three options after burning the boats. He said, you can swim back, but you're probably going to drown. You can give up and not be and surrender and probably be slaughtered at the enemy's feet, or you can conquer the island with me, take their boats and go back home <laughs> to your wife and kids. Yes. And when I said that, it was, um, and basically when I was listening to that, and even revisiting this year, the book, I was thinking it's at least once every six months. Yeah. And when I read it, and I thought about it, it's like a war. And when you treat life like a war, when you get a war, your your drive is to survive. Your first and true instinct is survival above all else. Mm-hmm. And I was like, when you really commit your goal and you, to the point, and this is extreme, I admit it, but what's helped me is where I will stick my life on my goals. If I fail, I wanted to die to, to achieve them. Because if I was to go to war, I knew my goal is to survive. The, the diff, there's no difference between to the point between a goal of survival and a goal um, in a war or anywhere else if you apply that same mindset. I'm, I wrote down on the, my whiteboard and I said, if I fail to achieve these goals, due to a lack of action on my end, I will kill myself. <laughs> and I swore I would achieve it. And, and when your life is at risk, the human instinct kicks in. And I nearly died before as well, and from autoimmune disease even, years ago after my dad died. I knew that I would do anything to survive. And I knew that survival instinct was there. And when you really commit to burning those boats and willing to put your life on the line to achieve it, you'll find every single way to figure out how to get to that goal. All the obstacles that you will face are no longer going to be seen relevant because you're like, if I fail and I don't overcome this obstacle, I'm going to die. You're not going to fucking want to fail. And I love the burn the boat thing, but there's something that I also want to consider is when you, let's say, go to anything with the mentality of burn the boats, which is genius, do you still have that clarity to see sometimes that, okay, this is actually, I'm trying to resuscitate a dead cat here. You know that? Uh, is there a time where you see like there's actually nothing else I can do when it comes to, I don't know, a business or a product that, that is possible to see? Some people fall so in love. So with all that um, 
I call it open-minded thinking, where what I before I even set the goal and set that intent, where I'll put my life on the thing, I'll look at every angle of possibility. So as I said, clarity is everything. So I will look at and find seven ways to provide a dead product, for example. Mm-hmm. Will these ways be able to drive the traffic before I get to the top? If it's not going to happen, then I know there's no point in even trying it, right? And I'll just leave it beforehand, right? Sometimes I always say it's better cut off your losses than it is to um, keep trying sometimes. For example, if you've got gangrene on your leg, unless you've got maggots by you, say, for example, you're on a ship in the middle of nowhere, like in the olden days, you're better cut on your leg to get gangrene when they're trying to survive it and find the maggots, mm-hmm. right? So you've got to sometimes, cutting off the old is way better than trying to, because here's the thing, a lot of people get so attached to ideas that the, the old or the um, negative is holding them back from the, something new. If you look at even toxins even, and from bacteria, and microbes as a whole, when they affect our body, they're actually harmless in a sense. What's actually causing the harm is not them, it's the toxins that they release. And when you don't release the toxins, it's when it starts doing damage to your body. You can have, for example, let's go something like syphilis or chlamydia, second argument. Yes, all bacteria isn't, it actually sits there, but you don't have any toxins coming out. It would mean nothing to you. What would it do to you if the toxins aren't there? Nothing. Yeah. But if the lack of release of a toxin when it starts hitting your skin or your tissues or your muscles or your organs, that's when it starts doing damage. So I always say sometimes you have to release the old to release the new. So it's basically, bury the cat sometimes, the dead cat, when trying to resuscitate it. All right, let's, let's change gears a little bit into your Web Matrix group. Okay. Okay, so Web Matrix group, you help businesses grow and increase their sales, and that's what most businesses want is sales and, of course, profit. And you touched on a little bit earlier about the PR side. So by increasing their exposure, of course, they're going to they're gonna grow from there. Is that the base strategy is increasing the exposure of the business or how does this work? Yes. So my aim is always two things. First, make sure the reputation is on point. Because if you've got all the exposure in the world, but your reputation is not on point, it's going to actually cost you more. Mm -hmm. Once the reputation is in place, then we can work on the exposure and get you more visibility. All right. So you, you don't, that's a good one. So you don't bring on all the traffic until until everything is ready for the traffic to get there, because that could have a negative effect. Yeah, to your business. At the end of the day, for example, I'm going to put it this way. You had an e-commerce product with a two-star rating. Why on earth would you want to drive traffic to that thing? You don't, yeah. Right, but you have a five-star rating or four-star rate, rating or whatever, you want to drive traffic to that. It's going to convert, and it's going to be better for your brand. If you've got a negative rating product and you're going to be driving traffic to it, it's going to only hurt your brand and your reputation. Oh, yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm living proof of that because I do a lot of advertising inside the Amazon platform. And, of course, Amazon is is different than, than let's say, if I have a Shopify store. My my conversion rate inside Amazon is through the roof compared, compared to any e-commerce site, right? Because... Let's say if I have a, and you know this, and a Shopify store, and somebody types in a Bluetooth speaker, and they they find my store, they don't always have buying intent. While on Amazon, if somebody types that, they're looking to buy one. So I can get over sometimes 60% conversion rate on Amazon. And if my star rating goes below three on Amazon, that 60% conversion rate can go down to 7 or 8 And although outside of Amazon, 7 or 8% is still considered decent, uh, man, if that's from from 4-star to 3, 
it's a huge loss, right? Even five to four. But yeah, one star, two star, don't even bother. You're not. You're and not it's not a star, but it's just reputation as a whole. Reputation is your life. Mm-hmm. As Robert Greene said in 48 Lord of Power, guide your reputation with your life. So basically, your image should be number one. Your image of your company is the most important in that case. And that's how you grow customer base. Now, well, I'm how- going to put it this way. If you have a bad image or reputation, how, how much harder would it be to grow a business? Of course, it's, it's very hard. Yeah. So how do I keep them? How do you improve reputation? It depends on the type of business. But I always say to people like in the e-commerce world, if your product is faulty, give the client their money back and send them a new replacement product. Who knows? They may even turn to your most loyal fans and customers because you're going beyond what everyone else is willing to do. Everyone wants to just meet, do the bare minimum. I like to go beyond. If I can go beyond, then I'm going to stand out in the crowd of space. Mm-hmm. So what types of businesses are welcome into the web matrix group? Is it online businesses or any type of business? I do online and traditional. Okay. But what I like is businesses with integrity. And if you have, for example, a service-based business, service-based business are... They require a lot of lead generation. Is that services that you offer? What kind of services are you offering inside the web matrix? So I offer the setting and optimization we've touched on. The other thing I offer is YouTube um, commercials or advertising for the YouTube ads. Then I also offer um, high converting ADA compliant web design, which means American Disability Act and multilingual. Now, here's what most people don't realize. If we look at Canada, Canada has a large population of French speakers. Mm-hmm. In the US, we have a large population of Spanish speakers, especially in somewhere like Texas or Miami. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much majority is Spanish. And you go yes. to like um, Quebec in Canada, it's pretty much majority is French. Yes. So what I like to do is I will immediately like to build the sites into multilingual effect where we can touch the other um, languages. Because now I'm getting the traffic and, and the local brand. And mm-hmm. this is, my wife is Hispanic, so she's half French and half American. The Hispanic community as a whole, not only is it a major purchasing trillion dollars a year um, potential purchasing industry, it's more loyal than English-speaking. Yes. Yeah. And then another thing, I, now this does not apply to every business, but for example, I would say to businesses, if you can, hit the LGBTQ team um, communities as well. They are extremely loyal and they spend more money and have a lot more money than most people realize. I've, I'm not sure exactly the purchasing power, but I'm going to put it this way. A few of my friends who are in the LGBTQ community, they earn about seven to ten times that of the average person. So they're earning minimum, all, actually all my friends who are in that community, they're earning upwards of 500000 a year. Hmm. <laughs> and they spend a lot of money, a lot of money. Yes. So that's something I played around with, and it's targeting Spanish speakers. And because I did some of that research, I know there's over 40 million in the U.S. So on, on the back end of the listings, right on the front of the listings where we put all the copyright, we have to, depending on the platform, for example, on Amazon, you, are, you have to write in English. But the back end, all the search terms are written in Spanish. So I can try to, you know, please the Spanish speaking community and, uh, and it does work. It does work. Yeah, and even on your own website, even like I said, and you even running ads, I like to hit the LGBTQ community as well. And the reason being is, is they're so under-advertised too. Like the disability market, for example, is also very ad- under-advertised too. I like to start targeting the community that you're accommodating for these communities where no one else will accommodate for. 
uh, or message to them. Because that means I become the monopoly in those three segments. While everyone's competing over the, the Red Ocean for yes, the yes. normal English speakers, standard straight, heterosexual um, thing. Right? I'm heterosexual, obviously, because I'm with my wife. But the point is, everyone's competing for my attention and my wife's attention and everyone else like normal. But you go to a different segment of the market where it's like the disability, where um, LGBTQT, the Hispanic, the French, the Portuguese, etc. You can now tap into markets and grow your business exponentially become the, and rule that blue oceans. Yes, man, I, I love that. And uh, you, know, you know what? I speak Portuguese. We talked about it earlier. I was 25 years in Portugal. And... I never saw that as an advantage till recently uh, because I sell on Amazon. I've been doing it for many years. People keep asking me, why don't you have a course? And I, of course, I don't have a course because I'm not the, the course type, right? I give away a lot of content. I do it for free. Plus, I said, there's a hundred a hundred Amazon gurus that have courses. Some of them have three months experience and they already have a course. And somebody asked me to do it in Portuguese. Right, and I thought about it. You know what? There's 10 million Portuguese speakers in in Portugal. Uh, Forget that. Just Sao Paulo, Brazil. Exactly. That's what what the realization was. Brazil speaks Portuguese, and there there's more Brazilians than in Sao Paulo than it is than there's almost in in all Portugal. Oh, the population of Sao Paulo is more than New York itself. Hmm. So yes, knowing. A different language, for example, Portuguese, Spanish can be very, very beneficial. Well, I'm gonna put this way: even use another language yourself. Like I don't speak Spanish, my wife half Mexican. My wife speaks Spanish. A lot of my friends, right, I speak Spanish. Actually, one of my friends who are telling you about the LGBTQT, his name's Carlos. Carlos speaks Spanish fluently. He's from um, what was it, Panama? Yeah. Right. The thing, but you can hire people that speak Spanish even for you. Yes, absolutely. Or the other languages. You don't have to speak the language yourself, but have the people on your team to accommodate for these people. Now, Amy, tell me, where do you plan on being five years from now? Do you have that figured out? Do you have that I don't plan? have a look at five years. What I've done, my philosophy is, I like to look at well, um, a year from now. I call that my vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, it's a more of a dream. And well, I know what I want, and, and I know what I want. For example, I've got this house I really want to buy. Very expensive, absolutely phenomenal house. The house is twenty million dollars. <laughs> nice. Right? So I am not. It's on my vision board. And I was like, okay. As like, what I like to do is I like to compress things into time. And what I've realized is, again, because this is my chemical and medical background um, talking here. When I looked at, so after my dad died, you said how it affected me as well. What happened was I actually grew up Muslim and I left religion completely. And in fact, I turned my back on God. I was determined to prove that evolution would exist. Because I didn't want to accept that something could happen like that. And actually, the one I'll put it here, but that was actually assassinated over research more accurately. The malpractice was done through assassination. Oh, wow. Yeah, over medical research. So with it, I really turned uh, and wanted to prove that God didn't exist to make myself feel better and even get revenge. At, at that point, it fucks you up in a way that people don't even imagine. Yes. So with it, I was watching a, um, what's it called? The Prince of Egypt, that's what it's called. And I saw a scene, it was like one o'clock in the morning, I was watching the Prince of Egypt for some reason after the gym. And I was speaking to a mentor at the time, a boy who just lost his wife, um, he's worth 160 million, this guy. We were in the Prince of Egypt and I saw Moses speaking to God. And there was a burning bush. And I just had a pen and paper with me, I was writing things down, just trying to make myself feel better and drawing crap. 
I can't draw, by the way. I'm a bad artist. <laughs> well, what happened was I just wrote down on the next piece of paper, God. I put an hour down. I put energy. And then I put a cross, heat, sound, light. And I just went to bed after that. I just didn't finish the film and went to bed. And when I woke up in the morning, it was raining. London always rains, though. It's a very depressing country. Yes, yeah. I saw a rainbow. And I wrote rainbow down on the same piece of paper by accident. I don't know why I did it there. And I just put seven spectrums of light. And then it just clicked to me. And then I was like, so my mom actually grew up in the Muslim in a monastery, in the Catholic monastery. So I went to school there and she grew up in a monastery. So, and then um, it was strange. The Bible fell down. My mom had the Bible from when to, uh, monastery days at school. And it, it said um, on the page, I am the light. I'm like, that's so strange. So I wrote that down. Then I pulled up the Quran and the Torah, because I my, some of my best friends were Jewish. And then I looked at all the religions and it said, light, I am the light, or I'm your, or Diwali is just a festival of lights. I started seeing light in all the religions. It's a pattern. As I said, I'm not big about pattern. And nature, rainbow, is pattern. And, and I said, okay. If light is a pattern of all the religions and it's energy, let me take a look at the laws of thermodynamics. And the law of thermodynamics says energy can't be created and it can't be destroyed. It's just everywhere at once. It can take on any shape or any form, which is the same attributes as God himself. So mm-hmm. with that, I wrote that down. And then I said, okay, maybe I'm going crazy. So I looked at um, the atom. And with the atom around the nucleus, we have seven electron cells maximum around the atom. And then, because I'm big on um, quantum physics as well, learning about it, it had seven copies of every single photon, meaning the seven parallel dimensions. So I wrote seven, seven, seven. Seven spectrums of light for the rainbow, seven for electron cells around the atom, seven um, photons for the, for the parallel dimensions. Then I looked at the religion and it said the seven heavens, the seven sins, and it kept going the seven again as a pattern between religion and nature. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so strange that I said, okay. So what I did is I created seven goals, one for each area of my life. And I did this in 2015, the goals. Uh, and, and basically, I said, for seven areas of my life, I broke these goals down to seven outcomes, to seven things that are going to happen to make my goal a reality. But I broke these goals down into seven steps. So I got 49 steps per goal. One step a day towards my goal, and in 49 days, I achieved my goal. And when I did 49 times seven, including the fact that I don't take breaks or things go wrong or whatever, is that's the seventh cycle in the, in the year. And again, I found that fascinating. So I always say, whatever you want, break it down to seven things got to be done, goals, each time. And then you can achieve almost anything you want in five years in one year. People underestimate what we can achieve in a year. Oh, yes. And you also mentioned there that you had you had a vision board. And, and since since you read Your Think and Grow Rich uh, once every six months, uh, I, I understand that. And I have one too. So... That was going to be my next question is, do you have a, a vision board? And, and what's, what's there besides your $20 million home? What's on that vision board? Okay, so I'll, um, first I'm going to talk about Pinkerest and, and why I use the vision board. And I'm going to say what's on my vision board. So what I like from Pinkerest the most, and this is um, the principle auto-suggestion. So we take the breakdown auto-suggestion. Auto is like automatic, which means it repeats and never ending. Mm-hmm. And the suggestion is suggestion of an idea. So what it's basically saying is the repetition of an idea is the principle of auto-suggestion. So with that in mind, I said, okay, what do I want to put in my mind that I really, really want? So I have put the house I want, obviously. I want a family, meaning I want kids. I'm married, but I want kids. And then also I have a vision of me being healthy, me doing great things philanthropy-wise for things that I really care about. And then other things as well, the simple things that I really, really want to achieve. For example, I really want an in-column. That is on my vision board. 
It's it's so it's so incredible seeing different people's vision boards and what what really motivates them and what gets them going. It's for example, me and my wife we talked about this and on, she did one and she put it in the room where we could see it every day. And her vision board has nothing to do with finances, nothing to do with money, and it was being active. Uh, being a more family uh, family oriented, be a better speaker, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's fascinating to see what what people actually want. Well, I've done my basically my vision. What I want from the year end, I put onto my vision board. Now my phone broke literally two weeks ago, and I had to travel straight as soon as I got my phone the same day. So I don't put it back on my phone, but I put it on my phone because whenever I pick up the phone. Whenever I go look at my phone, if I want to be mindless, I see that vision board and it allows me to focus and reconnect to what I really want. That's a good point. I got to do that on my lock screen and put it. Yeah, put it. that's exactly on my wallpaper. And I do it on my desktop and laptop as well. That's my vision board. It goes there. That's so I literally got all my PCs back and everything. And I'm like, I put, whilst I went away, I had everything repaired and I went, um, I put it everywhere. <laughs> Very good. I'm going to do that as soon as we're done with the call. I mean, I'm going to put that on my, on my phone too. So to be respectful of your time here, Amy, let everybody know where we can find you, where we can hear more about you. Yeah, they can find me on Instagram at Amy Tarek, or they can find me on Facebook at Amy Tarek or LinkedIn, or at my company website, webmexisgroup.com. Okay, I'll have that all on the show notes. I'll have your LinkedIn, Instagram, and your web matrix group. Amy, thank you very much for uh, for your time, for the all, the all the knowledge, and we'll definitely have to stay in touch. Definitely. Thank you so much. I really thank, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for subscribing to Fail Fast Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and visit failfastpodcast.com for show notes, Quinn's social media, or even to tell us your story.